There are two types of proofs in this world, and two types of people to go along with them. The first is based on evidence, stringing together data points and logical arguments in order to come to a correct conclusion. The second is social, based on referencing and deferring to the crowd or an institution, and hoping that sometime along the way, along a chain of long social proofs, that at some point, somebody down the road did the work. Of course, both of these are necessary if we want to solve complex problems. The enforcement of standards and the best combination of these two processes has fueled the scientific and technological growth of the past few centuries. What begins to unravel this is the two types of people I've already talked about. The first is one who has the competence in order to put ideas together, in order to correctly draw conclusions, make predictions, and verify them with evidence. However, they might be incredibly skeptical of any type of institutional framework, of any type of collaboration, aside from the most cynical and utilitarian. The latter are often those who are devoid of competence altogether, who see no contest in whether their own abilities would be greater than that of their peers. Namely, they always defer to social proofs, they always defer to the crowd, and have no notion of even putting together the most basic, simple checks on whether the ideas they're repeating are true or not. The problem is, if you stuff a hundred of those people into an institution, then suddenly they're trusted by everyone else, and the groupthink propagates. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus, demystifying politics, media, and culture for all who seek a rational way out. <laughs> The crisis I'm referring to is, of course, fact laundering, and it's based fundamentally in the idea of social proofs. The idea of a social proof is that repeating a logical proof, or even providing the elaborate data points, experimental methodology, and other forms of evidence required is a little bit too difficult. And after all, not every person, particularly those without domain-specific knowledge, will understand it. So what's the next best alternative? Well, in lieu of actually understanding something, why not hand out the work to someone who we think does? An expert, you might say. Someone who has the track record, the demonstrated competence, and the resources in order to come to such a factual conclusion. There's nothing wrong with this idea in theory, and even in practice in many circumstances. Of course, all of this comes to whether those assertions that I made about the identity of the expert is actually correct. Is the expert actually competent? Is the expert actually reasoning based off of the data? And does the expert have a strong track record? All of these ideas are built into what we expect out of an expert. Increasingly, none of them are fulfilled. 
This is an increasing phenomenon that you see in journalism, where quote-unquote established papers often use the phrase experts say, without any mention of a citation, without any mention of factual evidence, and without even revealing the identity of the people behind the statement. Of course, there are situations when this is necessary. Whistleblowers, foreign operatives, those whose lives might be truly at stake due to political circumstances. However, that doesn't close to warrant what occurs in the mainstream. Instead, this is often a method to propel disinformation and institutionalized conspiracy theories, some of the greatest problems in mainstream media today. What this technique allows is for the ability of a social proof to be constructed without any traceable form of a factual proof. Historically, what you would try to do to offset this is to have a strong track record in terms of an institution themselves, whether they be journalistic, scientific, or governmental in nature. However, we've already talked about the destruction of any type of feedback mechanism that these journalistic companies are actively trying to prevent, are actively trying to prevent any contact with evidence or reality on mistakes that they have grievously made, and that these standards are not enforced for their supposed journalists whatsoever. Of course, the caveat I always have to give is that you do see the diamonds in the rough once in a while. Institutional trust should be nowhere near 100, but it shouldn't be zero either. There are people who do good work at each of these papers, but of course, at the same time, there are bad actors as well. Another form in which this takes place is the quote-unquote background citations, quoting anonymous officials who are not going to reveal their identity and are often speaking about private individual conversations. This, as with the previous technique, is a necessary evil in many circumstances. However, they once again are centralized off of the reputation of the institution. If the institution's reputation is broken and unresponsive to reality, then all of these checks, all of these measures need to be put into place. This includes demanding that sources reveal themselves if they want to hold themselves to a higher standard, it includes demanding that citations must be made, because not only are journalistic institutions vulnerable to the same social fabrication that we've talked about, but unfortunately, so are scientific institutions. In many cases, scientific institutions internally are actually still fairly good at enforcing these standards, particularly in the more rigorous sciences. What's the problem here then? Well, it's experts say, because if experts are speaking, particularly anonymously, to a journalistic source, then they're not actually required to go through any of the standards, any of the high watermark that's necessary for something to get published. In other words, an expert without a citation is no expert at all. 
they do not have the factual evidence on their side, they do not have the trust that is gained from applying the scientific process, and they certainly do not have evidence. In other words, there must be an active demand for factual citations whenever any of these claims are made, even if there are possible national security concerns or personal security concerns by revealing the identity of the individual, you can still go one step further and anonymously publish something through one of these scientific journals, through some of the proper processes, and have the evidence out in the open for people to see. One natural question that springs up is, why is this happening now? And maybe the typical answers, network effects, insularization, that I've been focusing on this podcast aren't quite enough. Fortunately, there is more of an answer. An increasing development in specialization in attainment of post-secondary degrees has been one of the defining characteristics of the newer generations, particularly Millennials and Generation Z. This specialization often consists of learning patterns and rote mechanisms, particularly for those who don't have the independent ability to do the scientific jobs that are increasingly in demand. It is widely studied that in the short term, measures of independent ability stay constant. However, we've seen an explosion in areas that require higher functioning. And, as we've just talked about in the beginning, there are two ways to obtain this function. One is that independent work, and another is a form of social plagiarism, simply implementing ideas that are gained from circulating in high-ability networks. In fact, this is the exact proposition that is offered to incompetent children of elites. The ability to circulate in a high-functioning area, such as a university, at the cost of a much higher bill. Those who ascend through this method do so by reflecting their social graph instead of on themselves. This also translates quite simply and straightforwardly to the political sphere, where the same thing applies. Instead of building independent ideas, deferring to the social graph and deferring to groupthink becomes the most successful default. Of course, at this point, this is just a conjecture. You might already have ideas in your mind of what evidence could be used to support it. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the next component. Of course, let's establish the baseline first. Those of you who are more attentive and who have more of a psychological background know that there are two core ideas that are heavily rigorously verified that undergird this mechanism. The first is Ash Conformity. For a quick review, the Ash Conformity experiment was conducted with one individual, the subject of the experiment, and a bunch of actors. In the scenario, there was a simple factual question, such as drawing out four parallel 
clearly distinct lines, and asking the members of the group, both the actors and the subject, which line was the longest. Then, the actors all made a clearly wrong answer, pointing to one of the lines that was fairly clearly not the longest. These experiments showed that roughly three quarters of people in the role of the subject would go along with the false choices of the actors at some point, despite them knowing and admitting afterwards which line was longer. This shows the susceptibility to groupthink, to repeating baseless social claims so long as the social network is doing the same. The second is Pavlovian conditioning, the idea that conditioning an action with a positive outcome will incentivize that behavior in the future. This is conducted with all ranges of people, usually with simple rewards and treats or in finances, and also conducted with animals as well. Pavlov's dog might be the most famous example, and is one of the bedrock principles of behavioral psychology. Then we get an intuition for our model fairly simply. People who are at a much lower ability than their social graph have a clear Pavlovian conditioning. When they bet on their own abilities, they're more likely to be punished. When they bet on the abilities of their social network, they're more likely to be rewarded. But that's not quite enough evidence, at least not by my standard. You also have polling evidence. Here comes back to the realm of politics, where I'm more familiar. We saw increasingly a degree of preference falsification. And in the exit polls of the 2020 election, this turned out to occur most frequently among those who were conservative-leaning and who had attained a college degree or higher. In other words, preference falsification correlated with that educational attainment. The same thing occurs at a much higher degree to students who are still on campus. A recent Gallup poll found that 61% of students were preference falsifying, not admitting their true opinions on even straightforward factual matters, let alone political opinions. There is not straightforward data collected for the general population, but every indicator would say that 61% of the average American or the average person in the world is not preference falsifying, at least not to the same degree. In other words, what you have is an intensive degradation of university signals, in essentially lumping in a minority of highly competent individuals with those who are highly incentivized to be preference falsifying. If you model this mathematically, you get an even greater problem which is that this doesn't just happen on a first-order basis. What I mean by first degree is if you are copying off of someone who you know is acting independently. In other words, there's just a chain of one, the person who you're copying off of and the person who is copying off of them. This is not always the case. 
particularly in more hyper-connected social networks, which we all know listening to this podcast is exactly what has ramped up in the past 10 years. Instead, it becomes much more likely that instead you are operating off of a second degree connection, or a third, a fourth, and so on, having social and hopefully factual signals passed through a long network. We can already intuit some problems, games of telephones, and the insularization and confirmation bias that we already know exists, particularly in the political space but also in the realm of ideas more generally. Finally, the increasing prevalence of base rate errors, of phishing expeditions, of incredibly poor but successfully published work in various sciences, and the degradation of those institutions are also a symbol, at the very least, that the average degree of competence is reduced. So let's count our marbles and see where we are. We see a manifestation of preference falsification due, so let's collect our marbles and see where we are. We have a scenario where it is likely that people face a choice. Do you trust yourself or do you trust those around you? And many choose the latter. This compounds, becoming worse and worse. The chains become longer, more susceptible to bias, and more likely to become an echo chamber. Particularly at some of the higher end institutions that these types of people then go work at. Particularly those who would be more incentivized to draw people who are not independent thinkers. Who actually selectively benefit towards those who are repeating social signals instead of coming up with independent ideas, are increasingly likely to accumulate those who cannot apply evidentiary standards and are highly susceptible to bias. Huh, does that sound familiar to anyone? Of course it does. Political parties, activist groups, and yes, many individuals in media fit exactly this bill and the consequences of their actions also follow along this pattern. Not only that, it would also make perfect sense that these individuals and institutions are the most susceptible to attacks on the social graph, particularly things like disinformation or quote-unquote cancel culture, ones that target particularly harshly those who are unable or who are weakly able to apply standards of evidence. So now comes the part of the podcast where we talk about how to solve these problems. And one idea was actually mentioned somewhat off the cuff in a reading of an article I wrote in response to Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji is actually someone who has been on this idea for a long time along with his general ethos of blockchain. However, this is actually one of the most foundational uses of blockchain, and is not an unnecessarily technological leap. As a reminder, what blockchain does is provide a decentralized game-theoretic listing 
of what is essentially a bunch of certainties. Often this is used to account for a currency, but as Balaji points out and has done for a long time, this can also be an account of reputation. First, the facts can be recorded as statements of attestation, as evidence, as data, etc. in clear, easily citable locations on this blockchain. Then anyone who wants to reference those ideas in order to make an argument or a reporting will then have a clear point at which to do so, and it will be easy to trace back to those pieces of evidence or lack thereof when time comes to check whether those terms, whether those ideas and articles have stood the test of time and still remain correct with new evidence or with possible changes in what is covered in the mainstream. This would provide accountability and immediate knowledge for all those who wish to see it of how successful each individual journalist or even each institution is at actually corresponding to the facts at hand. Moreover, it provides an active reputation overlay. You can see with the addition of a small internet browser tool how accurate an institution has been in the past. I would predict that with this function available, there would be two things that happen. One is that several institutions or independent writers that are much more accurate than they are successful would be able to gain popularity and reputation. At the same time, institutions with strong distribution power and reach, who are captured, who are affected by these institutional conspiracy theories that prevent them from reporting accurately, will decline. Number two is that this changes the incentives at play. It creates that reinforcement that we are so hungry for. Now of course, this is not a silver bullet. As with many blockchain ideas, the hardest problem is adoption. Because there's a lot on the line and those who are currently benefiting from the lack of accountability, from the lack of responsibility, are the most willing to stop this system from being implemented. This is a classic protection racket. And unfortunately for all of the blockchain people, we have to turn to a word that they really don't like, that is government. This is actually a clear objective standard that can be implemented, that can be provided as a public service at very low cost to the general population and has an extreme compounding benefit to the public. It also requires enforcement for the exact adoption purposes that I just stated. Moreover, tossing a bone back to a lot of the libertarian Bitcoin type people, adoption of blockchain technology, even if it is not directly related to currency, still creates an institutional inroad for blockchain into government operations, which can eventually lead to a more favorable approach to currencies as well. Finally, 
another measure that I think could be vital, could be either used in conjunction or independently with the previous solution, is an active reputation publishing rule. Collecting statistics about factual errors, tracing corrections, and forcing headline publication in every institution of this tracked record. Of course, particularly in the United States, but also to high degrees in other parts of the world, this is a difficult thing to do from the lens of government. There are strong protections, and I am very much in favor of these protections, they do much good in protecting the freedom of the press. However, an accounting of internal factual errors is already something that is a created by journalists. This is something that obviously happens. It can be traced in various straightforward manners, and having it be published in a similar way to, say, a label at the bottom of a drug that talks about the active ingredients and talks about the possible side effects is certainly something that could be in reach. It is under a clear category of content that is already produced by those journalistic outlets. In other words, it is not coerced production, only coerced revealing of information that already exists. Not only that, but it is clearly measurable. You can have documentation that gets put down from each of these institutions of whether corrections were factual or not, and have this be measured in a way that is scrutinized by the public. It may require a concrete pressure campaign on institutions, and this is the most risky part in that it may not succeed. However, the same network effects that increase adoption of disinformation and institutionalized conspiracy theories also create network effects for pressure campaigns such as these that are used for positive and factually verifiable ends. This creates a necessary enforcement of accuracy claims, and if used in conjunction with the previous idea, can provide an auditable source of each claim that has to be published at the top of any page that gives that information for all who seek it. In other words, a radical reduction in the amount of social proof that can exist without a factual proof. A high-speed connection between the reputation of institutions and individuals and whether they are right on the facts. Of course, one way to boost these campaigns and to hopefully boost media that you think aligns with these standards is to support metapolitics. Now, what do I mean by that? After all, I'm still not accepting any donations. I don't intend to make any money off of this. Of course, I mean by contributing the most important thing of the 21st century, a recommendation to your social network. How ironic. But it's the thing I ask every week, and I mean it. Hopefully, the more you understand the dynamics of these social networks, the more you actually realize how important this is to the podcast and to the information space as a whole. Don't just share us, 
share anything that you find satisfies those standards of evidence. And of course, as always, if you do that, thank you.